Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Chief Economist Dr. Eric Crampton and with me today we have Jonathan Alvey who's from Hospitality New Zealand. The government this morning, well today is Wednesday, the 14th of December. This morning Parliament heard the first reading of a, some amendments to the Sale and Supply of Alcohol Act. I've been interested in alcohol policy for rather some time and Jonathan has as well and I thought it'd be a good idea to have a chat through it with Jonathan since well submissions on this are probably going to be due fairly soon after Christmas and anybody who's got an interest in it might want to know what's going on. So Jonathan's been watching it more closely than I have on these very recent changes uh, but I've been watching it for a couple of decades now otherwise so it'll be a fun chat. I guess just to start things off just on the policy context I've seen a few issues in how the sale and supply of alcohol act has been running. I'm sure you've seen others. I like to start with kind of a problem definition. What sort of problem might a revision to the act be actually trying to solve? What would be a good problem for it to be solving? Well, we know, we know the problem that they are trying to solve with the proposed amendment, which is that they have an idea that the community voice is not being heard loud enough through the through the process of uh, community engagement through both liquor licensing and local alcohol policies. I think from our perspective, one of the biggest challenges with the legislation, the way it's written at the moment, is that it tries to address all alcohol harm and uses a very broad definition of what is considered to be alcohol-related harm. And it tries to address it only through the sale and supply of alcohol. It does very little to address how alcohol is consumed or provide any kind of responsibility for the people that consume alcohol. It makes the assumption that through greater restriction or greater rules around how it is supplied or sold, uh, that you can address all ills associated with with alcohol. And as long as that's the case, it's going to be really difficult to actually make a, a large difference to any alcohol harm that happens in New Zealand. Sure. Maybe setting aside for now the problem that the government thinks it's trying to solve, what problems have we been seeing in the actual application of the Act? I know that I've seen some where I was somewhat involved in the Wellington LAP process back in 2014, where Wellington Council was trying to have a more liberal local alcohol policy than the national default. They wanted to have a 5 a.m. closing time rather than a 4 a.m. They saw nightlife and vibrancy as being really important to the kind of city that Wellington then wanted to be. And they were facing opposition from police and the medical officers of health and the various anti-alcohol sort of groups want to have a lot more restrictions. A lot of the framing in the current legislation has been around objections from industry to LAPs. In the Wellington process, it was objections from everybody else trying to have a more prohibitionist flavor to things. That process was really drawn out, and then Wellington wound up just sticking with national default because it was easier. So the process for setting LAPs seems to be a bit of a mess. There's also been problems that I've seen, and you'll have seen a lot more of, where if a community is fairly hoity-toity, like Candala, they seem to be able to block new liquor stores, whereas other places might find it more difficult, regardless of the merits. What, what, what issues have you been seeing? Yeah, so the, the local alcohol policy process, as you say, it, it can be quite a, a difficult, complicated process. The challenge is partly that there's 60-odd territorial authorities uh, that all have to go through the same process themselves at, at considerable cost and expense to try and assess what is going to make a difference to alcohol-related harm. Often the people that are feeding into these consultation processes are not experts in, in the field of alcohol harm. 
And there's always a lot of different data and statistics that are used in some quite spurious ways to to try and show that that certain restrictions on alcohol will lead to improvement in outcomes. And often there are big kind of leaps being made around one thing leading to another, particularly in our experience when it comes to reducing the hours that on-licenses trade and the really poor evidence that placing restrictions on on, on licenses leads to, to a reduction in harm. So at the local alcohol policy, there's real challenges. In terms of the appeals process, I think the appeals process has been used by both sides of the argument. As you say, in Wellington, the council was taking quite a liberal, progressive view on how they wanted to to operate under the Act. And for police and public health especially, that was a real challenge for them and, and they strongly opposed. Likewise, in Christchurch, the local alcohol policy proposed some quite dramatic restrictions on, on licences in particular, both in the central city and outside of the central city, would have become the most restrictive policy in New Zealand by quite a long stretch. And Hospitality in New Zealand led, led an appeal on that during which Arla went said that the council had to review the local alcohol policy. There were 13 areas in the policy that they found not to be consistent with the objectives of the Act. So, you know, the appeals process is seen as being a bad thing. I think what's worse than the appeals process is bad policy and what's being proposed, I guess, around removing the appeals process that's written into sale and supply of alcohol relating to local alcohol policies is going to see more bad policy put in place because there'll be no right to, to hold it to account through the appeals process. Well, that's starting to get more into what, what's actually in the legislation. We'll probably have to, we'll yeah, have to yeah. come back to that because I'm sure, no, that, no problem. I'm sure and, that others haven't, haven't caught up with all that yet. And, and I guess at a more micro level, so at a license by license basis, one of the biggest challenges that we find is that the, the licensing process itself, setting aside licensing fees and, and the way the cost is passed on to licensees, the licensing process itself is working relatively well, but there are, uh, I guess there are delays in issuing of licenses, particularly through the COVID period that have impacted on, on people's ability to trade. But if a license is objected to either by one of the reporting agencies, police, public health, uh, or the licensing inspectors, uh, or if there is community objection, it goes into a DLC hearing process, which creates uncertainty and cost and delays that can be quite lengthy in waiting for that to be approved. And one of the challenges is that because that process is quite uncomfortable and costly for a business owner, the regulatory agencies have quite a lot of influence to try and get things inserted into licenses, restrictions to hours of trade or other conditions that might place restrictions on how a business trades, how profitably they trade the hours. And there's a real incentive for the operator to consider accepting restrictions that perhaps shouldn't be implied or can't be justified if they were to go through a hearing in order to avoid that hearing process. And we've seen that abused in, in some jurisdictions. Arla has made comment on a number of occasions that in certain jurisdictions, police and public health or police and, and licensing inspectors have overstepped the mark. I, I wouldn't say it's abused on a wholesale basis. You know, we have a pretty good relationship with police and licensing throughout New Zealand. And, and when we see it, we call it out. But the legislation creates that opportunity. And we've certainly seen a lot of change of people in those key roles over the last couple of years. And uh, and it feels like we're about to go through another process of of having to, to make sure that the agencies aren't overstepping their mark uh, yeah. with the way the legislation is. Yeah, it's felt like there's a fair bit of luck of the draw in who your local police rep is on alcohol licensing. And if you've got a prohibitionist in there, they've got an awful lot of ability to 
impose costs on a hospitality venue or on a bottle shop saying, well, we'll object to what you're doing unless you agree to these conditions because we know that the process is just going to be so costly for you if you want to fight it, we know that you'll agree. Now, they may not put it quite that bluntly, but it's basically standover tactics and it's not something that should happen in New Zealand. Yeah, and and I guess the regulations, the way they're written, allow for that to happen. And, and whenever you've got that situation, there's a risk that somebody will try and take advantage of it. Sure. So we've had some problems in that. We've have, we had some process problems, but it's important to have appeals to make sure that the final rules are, turn out correct in the end. We've also seen what I viewed as kind of rigidities in the Act, where you, you have to go to Parliament to get a change to let bars run late when there's a sporting event halfway around the world. That means, well, folks are going to be out watching the event until six in the morning or something. It shouldn't take an act of parliament for those special one-off events to have that kind of flexibility. What sorts of things is the legislation then bringing through? Is it addressing those kinds of problems or you'd alluded to other things that parliament thinks that it's trying to achieve? We're talking now about the, yeah. the current bill to amend sales That's right. of alcohol. That's right. So, uh, no, this one doesn't seek to address any of those issues. It, it doesn't look to make the licensing process easier or fairer or less costly or more certain. It perhaps does quite the opposite. It, what this particular amendment seeks to do is make changes to the LAP process, changes to the individual licensing process. And, and I guess the, the key ones, if we deal with the LAP side of things first, at the moment, as we talked about just briefly, when an LAP reaches the proposed LAP stage, so this is where the consultation has happened with communities and the council it recommends a proposed local alcohol policy to be put in place. At this stage, parties that have been involved in the consultation can appeal that LAP to ALA, the Alcohol Regulatory Licensing Authority, which is um, at the, the high court level. Now, what the amendment seeks to do is remove that right to appeal. So once a, a provisional LAP is issued by the councils, it will move through to being in force in a period of 30 days with no right of appeal. The challenge, I guess, for us is that we've seen a number of inadequate proposed LAPs or flawed is probably a better word, uh, proposed LAPs that have quite rightly been appealed by various parties because they're not consistent with the objectives of Sale and Supply of Alcohol Act. And so having that removed, it doesn't give us any more confidence that the process followed before the provisional LAP is issued will be will be any better than it has been. So, um, and uh, so I'm just going to interrupt briefly. Are they adding any additional procedural checks in this? You could imagine maybe if when councils are putting up an LAP, they have to run it through central government somewhere that's just checking that it's actually consistent with the legislations, that they're not going off on a tangent somewhere. Are they doing anything like that? There's no changes to the process prior to that that, that are covered in, in this amendment. I, I would caveat that by saying that the, the government has said that they will be doing a further review of the legislation and looking to make additional changes at some stage before the end of this term. So this is the first stage in what they have said is a, is a more wider review of, of the legislation. And, and we'll continue to engage with Ministry of Justice as they develop that next stage of the changes. The other big changes to this one and the ones where we have quite significantly more concern are around the licensing process. So the district licensing committees or the DLCs, as, as we'll refer to them at present, in order to object to a liquor license through the DLC. So if somebody applies for a liquor license, they publicly notify it. An objector is required to have a greater interest than the public generally in that application in order for their objection to be heard. And that 
that restriction is being removed. Now, the, the rationale behind that that's been given to us is that too many people are being excluded from objecting on license applications because they're not considered to have a great enough interest. And so by removing that clause, they, they feel like the community voice will be heard more adequately. The challenge we have is that opens it up for any person or organisation in New Zealand to object to any liquor licence anywhere in New Zealand and is likely, at least in the short term, to see a flood of objections to licences that might be considered undesirable. So where there are a number of bottle stores in a, in a precinct already, an objection might be raised by an alcohol action group from a different city against a licence to say, well, we don't think there should be any more bottle stores or we think there's enough bars in this area. And those objections will have to be heard. In conjunction with that change being made, another change to the DLC process, the hearing process, is that the right to cross-examine submitters to the DLC hearings is being removed. So if somebody does come and make an objection and they appear at a hearing and they say their piece, the applicant for the licence or the lawyer won't have the right to question or interrogate that, that objection, which means that I guess the DLC potentially has to make a decision on on that objection without having the benefit of having it fully explored and understanding the, the information that's being relied on. Would the DLC still have the right to ask their own questions of the people who are submitting? Yeah, they would. Yeah, so the DLC will still have that right to, to ask questions of anyone that is present at the hearings, but it does shift a huge amount of the obligation and responsibility onto the three committee members of that DLC to ask all of the right questions and to make an assessment on the basis of doing that. Now, I don't have a position on the capability of the DLCs. I'll, I'll assume that the people that are appointed are all very capable, but that is a really difficult position for them to be in when people are making that objections or when people are making submissions in those hearings. I will note that this one does cut both ways. So while our applicants won't be able to make to cross-examine people that are appearing at hearings, the police, the licensing inspectors, and any objectors also won't have the right to, to cross-examine the other way. So we think, given the value of a liquor licence and, and the livelihoods that are at stake in this process, the the need to have the hearings run properly and fully should trump the need to have people's sensibilities protected around the, the, the idea of cross-examinations or the idea that objecting to a liquor licence shouldn't be uncomfortable. We don't, we don't agree with that. It, you know, it, as stressful or difficult as it may be for a member of the community objecting to a liquor licence, it is equally, if not more stressful and inconvenient for a, a business owner having their licence objected to. So that's a challenge that, that we think we, we will see some real issues coming from as this plays out. What's the standing of people who want to submit in favour of a the opening of a local bottle shop or a new licensed outlet? Uh, that's a good question. So they only hear objections. So uh, I guess a uh, an applicant could introduce letters of support or, or surveys of support, but the process itself doesn't allow for supporters to be heard other than perhaps as, as character witnesses if they were to be called. It, it's It's really set up to allow people to object to liquor licenses. Well, that's, that sets up a pretty bad spot for the DLC though, right? If they're the ones who are then having to ask any necessary questions, the only people that they're seeing in front of them are those who want to object to things and that's all they get to hear. They never get to hear from those who would be supportive of changes in their community or more vibrancy or being able to walk over and buy a bottle of gin if they wanted. 
they'd then be yeah. in the spot. Uh, that sorts of bu- builds kind of a, a almost a group think where if the only thing that you're ever hearing from anybody who's submitting is that it's terrible for their communities because nobody who would say otherwise is allowed to say anything. And you're not allowed to get contrary views coming through through cross-examination of those guys to see, well, where they're coming from on it. It's, it sets a path for DLCs to get a pretty biased view about what's actually going on in communities. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. And, and I would say at the moment that a relatively small number of license applications end up being heard by the DLCs. So my understanding is that slightly less than 5% of all license applications go to the DLCs. One of the challenges with the expansion of who can object to a liquor license is that we are likely to see that number skyrocket. Now, there will be a point, I think, where DLCs say enough is enough. We're hearing too many objections from the same people on the same topic, and we're deciding that those objections are not relevant, and and they may start to become a little bit more rigid in what objections they will accept. But there will be a period of time where I think it it will be quite a nerve-wracking process to go through a new license application particularly in some communities where there's been very active community groups trying to stop liquor licenses like, say, South Auckland. And yeah, I guess the the idea that the DLCs will only be hearing the negative side of things is probably a point I should have made right at the start when we talked about perhaps some flaws in the legislation, the way it's written at the moment. It seeks to reduce harm caused by alcohol, but it attributes no value to the positive benefits of licensed hospitality venues, of people's ability to consume alcohol without the state looking over their shoulders. So I know that's something that's close to your heart when it comes to assessing the the true impact of of these laws. Oh, it's kind of a fun one when there was a bottle shop proposed for Candela where I live. I knew that submissions in favor weren't accepted, but I went and stuck one in anyways, just because I was hopeful that I'd be able to just walk across whenever we were short of something for making a cocktail rather than having to go all the way down to, well, halfway into town before you'd be able to find a bottle shop or go over to Johnsonville or Nio. Any of those is a bit of a schlep. And and you start wondering about local monopoly rents when when you're too restrictive on allowing new competitors to come in. For sure. And and you saw under previous editions of New Zealand liquor laws, where there were caps on on license numbers, how the, the ownership of those licenses was highly concentrated for, for exactly that reason. I spent a lot of my career talking to councils about the amenity value, the, the positive impacts of hospitality and licensed premises in their in their cities. But often it's fallen on deaf ears, partly because of the way the legislation is written. Is there anything good in the legislation? Are they, are they making any changes in there that are actually addressing real problems that you've been facing? Look, I, I don't believe so. I mean, I, I think I, I think this is a piece of legislation that, from our perspective, sets out to achieve aims that it won't achieve in terms of further reducing alcohol harm. But it provides or, or it's, it's going to result in potentially more cost, more time delays and, and less certainty for business owners in this space, which is going to see, I guess, people make decisions not to invest. In, in new license premises. It's going to perhaps prevent reinvestment into existing licenses. One of the points I, I didn't touch on, I've just noticed, and perhaps one that long-term is the most concerning for us, is under the current licensing process, if a venue has a liquor license and then a, a territorial authority introduces a new local alcohol policy, the new local alcohol policy can't be taken into account when that liquor license is renewed with the exception of the hours of trade. So the local alcohol policy might result in you having to close your bar earlier, but 
other other terms if, if the terms of your license are inconsistent with the local alcohol policy currently they won't be taken that that lap won't be taken into account that is being changed to allow dlcs to now take into account any new laps that have been issued and if the renewal of a license would mean that that license is inconsistent with a local alcohol policy then they can refuse to renew so imagine a scenario where you've got a successful and well-managed bottle store in a community and you have a childcare center constructed in the same shopping complex as you. And when it comes to oh, renewal, crud. local alcohol policy has changed to say that you can't be within 500 meters of a sensitive site, including childcare. The DLC can now refuse to renew your license because it would be inconsistent with the terms of the new LAP. So in the short term, that's one that's probably going to fly under the radar from a concern perspective. But I think that's a real challenge that we're going to see in coming years with with the way this change is being written, and we'll be submitting strongly against it in the select committee stage. Oh, and you can imagine that causing all kinds of problems, right? Because under current RM processes, and who knows what the heck's going to happen under the revised legislation, there's already worries about reverse sensitivity, where if I'm an owner of existing premise, and I expect that if somebody puts up something next door that will start raising legal objections to what I'm already doing, then I want to object to their being allowed to do it in the first place because they're likely to try and run me out of business. So if I'm a, if I'm running a bar that's a little bit noisy and it's always been that way and somebody wants to put up an apartment building for old people who are whiny next door, well, yeah. I'm going to object to the whiny old people being allowed to live next door. Coming to it, coming to the nuisance has been a pretty good common law standard ages back, but we've gone away from that. Mm. Now you're describing a whole new area where we're going to be having problems. Well, th thanks for wrecking part of Christmas for me. <laughs> well, at least you'll be having a look at it for us. But um, yeah, and, and there are uh, places around the world. Melbourne's a good example in the CBD where if, if you want to build a new residential development and it's next to a, a hospitality business, the requirements to, to meet new acoustic standards and everything fall onto the person that wants to do the new development. And, and that seems to work relatively well in a city that values the late night economy or the, you know, the ability for their, their inner city residents to go out and enjoy themselves while also having additional housing provided in the city at the same time. Yeah, and that totally makes sense. And economists would recognize that if you have things set that way and it's crazy expensive for the new developer to put in all of the soundproofing, they could just go and have a chat with the bar next door and offer to put in soundproofing on the bar instead if that would solve the problem at lower cost to everybody. You still have that flexibility for those kinds of negotiations if you have that kind of an environment. Now, if there's, no, if there's nothing good in the legislation, then I guess we hope that the thing winds up being killed, but that seems pretty unlikely. What would, in your view, be the most important things that need to be fixed? I guess you've pointed to some of these, reinstating appeal rights and making sure that existing uh, licensees aren't, well, effectively regulatorily expropriated if there's a change in circumstances that are, well, well outside of their control. Anything else that we should be watching on? Well, I mean, you, you've you've followed. We think that there's challenges with everything that's proposed in this in this new legislation. I think what we would like to see, perhaps, is rather than changing the legislation, particularly around some of these issues, there is a big opportunity for agencies and industry to work more closely together. A lot of the relationships that we built up over the years, particularly with the Health Promotion Agency, which is now Health New Zealand, are still there. But we definitely see a lot less proactive engagement between agencies, I guess, that are funded through the, the levy that's collected on the sale of alcohol uh, and industry, which receives generally no funding to develop resources to, to reduce alcohol-related harm. 
I can only speak on behalf of Hospitality New Zealand, but we put a huge amount of uh, resource into creating tools and training for our members to be responsible hosts, to, to do things, I guess, that will reduce alcohol harm in, in their venues. And we would like to see more engagement with both police, licensing inspectors and, and Health New Zealand around things that everybody can do together to, to reduce alcohol-related harm. Changing the legislation, particularly the current legislation, is just going to lead to a more restrictive environment. It'll make potentially alcohol less available, but it won't address uh, most of the causes of harm, which is not when alcohol is purchased or when it's supplied. It's, it's what happens when alcohol is consumed. You won't be surprised to hear that that we think the safest place that uh, anyone can consume alcohol is in a licensed premise. I mentioned earlier that the legislation doesn't really deal with how alcohol is consumed. The one caveat to that is that in a licensed premise, the licensee and the manager of that premise do have some responsibility and some liability to make sure that patrons don't become intoxicated, that intoxicated patrons aren't served or remain on the premises, that there's not quarrelsome or disorderly conduct in their premises. So again, the, the current legislation from a hospitality perspective places far more obligation on hospitality operators, on on-licensed operators, than it does on off-premise operators. And so one of the things I think that could be addressed if we were going to really look at sale and supply, or if we were really going to look at alternate uh, licensing models, is uh, how do we deal with alcohol when it's consumed? You know, we don't have any concerns or any issues with alcohol being sold uh, in off-premise environments. We think that everybody should be able to go about their life and, and legally consume alcohol if they, if they want to. The challenge for us is that the current legislation disproportionately impacts or places responsibilities on unlicensed uh, operators that, that perhaps are not placed on either off-licensed sellers or on the public more generally when it comes to the consumption of alcohol. Yeah. When it's look, not an easy one to figure out there. Yeah, there are some obvious opportunities for trying to reduce harm. I worry that there's still this continued approach around availability theory that if you just reduce the number of outlets or their hours of operations or the places that you can get alcohol, then you're going to reduce harms. When I'd looked at this lit as part of the Wellington process, there was work looking at Manchester, UK's shift to 24-hour licensing from more restricted hours. The best you could make out of that is that it shifted the timing of harms while not doing anything to the quantum of harms. And if you're looking at on-license versus off-license, it looked like there was some case for having bottle shops closed before the bars did so that you didn't have people leaving the bars and then going and buying a big bottle of booze to take home with them. But beyond that, I didn't see that much either way. I'd also supervised a, co-supervised a master's student out of Canterbury who'd done some work looking at local alcohol policies in New Zealand more generally, and she couldn't find any evidence of substantial increases or decreases in harms across the different kinds of licensing conditions that get put under the LAPs, at least as they've been run so far. Part of that's just due to lack of statistical power. They haven't been in place for all that long, but it not, certainly wasn't making any cut and dried case for really tightening things up, which is what will be the effect of this legislation as it comes through. So I'm sure we'll have more chances to chat about opportunities missed on this. The one that I keep wishing we'd be able to look at more thoroughly in New Zealand is what would have been put in place in South Dakota where repeat alcohol offenders were put on probation that required a monitored no alcohol consumption condition and it seemed to really reduce harms because people were self-identifying as having had a substance abuse issue, that they were making very bad choices in the presence of alcohol and then they had alcohol restricted to them rather than more broadly. It was done for repeat drink drivers, but it also seemed to reduce domestic assault because the same people whose 
harmful relationship with alcohol meant that they were making bad choices about driving while they were making bad choices across a lot of margins. And it seemed to really cost effectively reduce harm while not bothering anybody else. But that'll be a, a chat for another day. Well, yeah, I mean, what you're talking about now is dealing with harm where harm happens, right? And and the legislation that we've got at the moment tries to deal with harm at a population level. Yeah. You know, everybody everybody needs to go home earlier or everybody needs to to have less availability in order to address the, the small amounts of harm that, that, that we see. So, yeah, again, as you say, maybe a conversation for another day, but it's uh, it's one well worth having. Well, thank you so much. We're heading off into Christmas. I hope everyone celebrates in moderation as appropriate. And you have a great break as well, if you get a chance to, because you're going to be stuck writing submissions. You got it. It's not just sale and supply of alcohol either, but we're going to have to finish this podcast at some point. So we can't, we can't get into everything else. Uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family and your listeners as well. Thanks, Eric. Thanks so much. And thank you, listeners. Tune in next time.